have a timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, way downtown. You're listening to the Off Court Podcast on the Harbinger Media Network, produced by the Mind Refinery and presented by Passage, the online journal of left Canadian thought and opinion. Find it at readpassage.com. Hear great shows like The Progress Report and Big Shiny Takes. Uh, We love both of those people. Duncan, Jeremy, you're fucking awesome. We're building a community that's challenging right-wing corporate media dominance from coast to coast. Get access to exclusive shows and other supporter-only content at harbingermedianetwork.com. Thanks. All right, everybody. I'm going to do the intro for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. This is the Off Court Podcast, a podcast about history and the political economy of sports. Uh, I, my name is Eitan Tobin. I am joined by my co-host... Abdul Malik. Hey, hey, hey. Sup, 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 sup. And we are here to... Uh, we're going to talk more basketball today. Um, you know, a subject dear to me and Abdul's heart, but... Uh, we're going to go from a geopolitical uh, uh, perspective today, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about Israeli basketball and a player that some of you guys might know named Amari Stoudemire. Uh, no relation so, to Damon. No relation to Damon Stoudemire somehow. But we're going to actually talk about some Raptors stuff in here. Somehow it all leads back to the Raptors. So, <laughs> yeah. Today we're talking about basketball in Israel, a subject really only spoken about by Zionist sports writers who just want to write glowing things about anything that happens in Israel. Otherwise, you really don't hear about it casually in any way, which was really fun to research this subject. Um, and as, as an Israeli Canadian who was granted citizenship from the result of religious immigration by my Canadian parents, I've experienced the league firsthand as a spectator. Um, I actually have a cousin-in-law who played a bench role for Maccabi Tel Aviv for a couple of years, so I got to see couple of those games when i was out there and i can tell you that it's very much a second tier sport in israel in comparison to soccer which is why it's so funny to me that there's all this like weird embedded racism in it that no one talks about ever um and maybe it's because soccer is the only thing that people truly care about there and this is one of the ways that like israel asserts itself on the world stage right like the reason this is i think might be important for even if you don't give a shit about basketball or israeli basketball is like you have to consider this the global program of Zionism and the role yes. it plays. It, well, basically, it's funny. Like no one really talks about this subject. Um, probably also due to the fact that the black players, the black players who end up going there, kind of end up just becoming mouthpieces for Israeli propaganda, like very naturally without any resistance on their part. After a bit of context, we're going to be focusing on one player in particular, partially because he's the most recent player, but also the most notable player in the Israeli league right now. Also partially just because it's kind of hilarious. Um, That player is Amari Studemar, as we said, New York Jesus Jew, if you will. But before that, we're going to get into like a bit of context about the Israeli basketball league, which is just like a um, uh, subject that isn't talked about quite a bit. The Ligat Hal which is the Super League or Premier League or the Israeli Basketball Premier League, it has four names, is the top-tier level league of professional competition in Israeli club basketball, making it Israel's primary basketball competition. Uh, the Legat Hall compromises top uh, the top 12 basketball clubs in Israel. It was founded in 1954. Um, the league itself is most is is most known in Europe due to the success of like some Israeli teams in the European wide competitions like the Euro Cup, uh, the Euro League, FIBA Euro Cup. And you have to consider that um, European basketball is played a lot more like European soccer, 
where mm. the top teams from the countrywide leagues uh, compete in Euroball, like where all the best teams from the best countries sort of play, right? Sort of like how the Premier and Championship leagues in um, soccer are played. It's not like the U.S. where there's, you know, one league with all the elite teams. Every country has its elite teams, and the best ones go on to the big, big championship that's across the continent. Which is actually why many non-drafted and free agent players from Europe and uh, the NBA actually end up playing in the Israeli league as an alternative to NBA competition. Um, it's a, it's very much a, a tier, many tiers below that European league, but somehow known as an alternative option. Um, during the 1980s and early 1990s, there were actually many basketball games played between the Israeli league stars and NBA teams, such as the Phoenix Suns, the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Orlando, the Orlando Magic, and the Los Angeles Lakers, all of which were played in Israel. Interestingly enough, uh, Abdul, we haven't seen these kind of exhibition games in the NBA preseason since the mid-aughts. Uh, wouldn't that be something if we had uh, an, an exhibition game in Israel in 2020 or 2019? In the will. year of our Lord, 2021. 20, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's crazy because like, and I'm sure it'll come back because like the NBA does play preseason exhibition games all over the world. You know, famously, China is one of their biggest markets for it. Um, but like Australia, Canada, Japan, you know. I missed like the Raptors exhibition game in Japan mm -hmm. like by like three weeks when I was visiting, which sucks by the way. That would have been sick too. <laughs> yeah, it would have. Um but yeah, like they um this is one of the ways that the NBA promotes global basketball and they have like an NBA worldwide corporation, right? That that seeks to promote basketball, notably in Africa and China, but all over the mm -hmm. place. And like basketball is big money in the US and China, like everyone knows that, but it's huge. Like players get really decent, like six to seven figure salaries in Europe or like the Australian basketball league is, is huge and is like a farm system in a lot of ways for the NBA. Well, farm system. If you recruit three players, you're considered a, to the NBA from your like local league. You're considered a mm -hmm. top tier global league, right? This has always been a fact too, but I guess David Stern's like initiatives in the NBA since the 1980s have been to continuously push this fact, like not only to fix the image of the NBA in America, but also um, present it as some kind of international brand, which has happened pretty successfully uh, in the past uh, little while. If there was a game in Israel this year for the preseason, man, would the China controversy be eclipsed, by the way. <laughs> we, would, we, would not, we would not be talking about that. Um, but a fun fact, as we're both Raptors fans, um, in October 2005, Maccabi Tel Aviv defeated the Toronto Raptors, our Toronto Raptors, 105 to 103 in an exhibition game that was played and in Toronto. And stole Karenica. the cup. They stole and the stole Naismith Cup. This was the first victory for any European or Israeli team over an NBA team at its home court, which could really lead to the to solving the mystery of the Naismith Cup. You brought this up, Abdul, in our chat. Um, it has not been awarded since that game. Um, it was, uh, it, in fact, let me actually get into a little ESPN article about this game. So um, Maccabi Tel Aviv beat an NBA team for the first time in 27 years. By the way, this is from the Associated Press on ESPN. They toppled the Toronto Raptors 105 to 103 on Sunday on Anthony Parker's jumper with 0 0.8 seconds left, <laughs> um, which is another Toronto connection we'll get into. But Parker, who played in the NBA for Philadelphia and in Orlando, had 24 points. Chris Bosh had 27 and 12 rebounds in 45 minutes. And Jalen Rose had 18 points in 41 minutes. Wow. What a shit Toronto Raptors team. <laughs> um, 
fucking rough years. A, a quote from Jalen Rose. They played this game like it was their championship game, and rightfully so, Rose said. Those guys are hungry for NBA jobs, which, funny enough, Anthony Parker made his return to the NBA the following season, playing three seasons and averaging 30 points per game for the Raptors. For the Raptors, yeah. Um, yeah. The Naismith Cup was a, a ceremonial cup that was played for before every NBA season by the Grizzlies and the Raptors. Like they were the only mm-hmm. teams that would compete for this cup because they're the two Canadian teams. But after the Grizzlies moved, the Raptors shifted it to whatever international team they were playing um, in like Canada. And there is a really good article by Blake Murphy at the athletic trying to figure out where the Naismith cup went. And he says that it, it, the the location of it cannot be discerned, but it's almost certain through his research that uh, Mac, uh, Maccabi Tel Aviv just stole the cup and like it's just hiding in the locker somewhere. It, it's not even a cup that means anything, but just doesn't like they just clearly took it home and never <laughs> returned it. Probably out of sheer excitement, but interestingly enough that you bring this up, like like I said earlier, no Israeli team has played an exhibition game since then. And actually, in the article, it said that uh, many of the 17,000 in attendance cheered for Maccabi, uh, which shows how many Israelis, I guess, we have in Toronto. The Counselor General for Israel in Toronto slapped hands and joined the team in celebration as NBA Commissioner David Stern hurriedly walked off the court. So David Stern was even mad about this win, which I thought maybe it was like a weird New York Jew vindictiveness for embarrassing like his precious expansion team. But as you bring this up, it's probably because he realized that these these Jews were going to steal the Naismith Cup from right under his nose. <laughs> and like David Stern, who was the former commissioner of the NBA, he passed away earlier this year. Um, like it was about a month before Kobe died, so his death sort of became overshadowed. Dude was a was a piece of shit, but like he, mm-hmm. his big thing was he like basically brought the NBA into the 20th and 21st century, and like he's, uh, you know, to his credit, he's one of the main reasons the Raptors exist, um, if not the main reason, um, aside mm-hmm. from you know every everyone else who was involved or whatever, but like um, Colangelo and all that shit. But like, yeah, no, he he does have that like you know hardness of like the it's like the new york jew thing like you said right where he was literally literally one of the most cutthroat people to ever run um, a sports league for better or for worse i other than him being an asshole his interviews where he undercuts people or when he like is crowd working the audience while he's doing the nba draft when they're clearly booing him and shit is it's pretty fucking god level like badassery um, but yeah, David Stern is kind of a piece of shit. Um, also, I guess the Maccabi Tel Aviv maybe thought the cup was theirs because they are are they kind of are the Boston Celtics and Lakers combined on crack for the Israeli um, basketball oh. league. Like they've basically won every single championship since the inception of the league, with like five exceptions throughout. So makes sense. The the book I was reading, I'm I'm reading Nick Nurse's or I just finished Nick Nurse's uh, autobiography and he mentions mm. uh Maccabi Tel Aviv from his time in Europe as one of those leagues where if the team did not win a championship, front office was likely all going to get fired. <laughs> like that's what the expectation was. Is like if you don't win, you're just gone, right? Cuz the expectation is you always win. That is fucking hilarious for a team in one of the smallest leagues in the world. 
over the so the NBA uh, ties with Israel did continue after this though. Like over the years, the uh, league has exported many of its foreign players to the NBA. In the 2009 draft, Omri Caspi was selected 23rd overall by the Sacramento Kings. Uh, Gal Meckel followed in 2013 by signing with the Dallas Mavericks. In 2016, Dragon Bender became the highest selection from the Israeli Basketball Premier League to be selected in an NBA draft with the Phoenix Suns. Um, taking him at fourth overall. Other players who have moved from moved from the league to the NBA include Will Bynum, Anthony Parker, Roger Mason Jr., Eugene Pooh Jeter, Carlos Arroyo, and Nate Robinson. By the way, major PJ Tucker erasure there, but also whatever he fucked the Raptors a little when he just left to go lose with Harden in the second round. It's worth mentioning uh, not all these players are Israeli. Like Dragon Bender yes. is um is from Bosnia. Nate Robinson is obviously from the US. Like um, yeah. But, but you know, these teams just pull international talent. Like, it's not yeah. unlikely for a player to play for the, you know, Israeli Basketball League for half the year and then go to, like, Canada and play for, like, a house league and then go to, like, Brazil and play for a team there, like, all in the exactly. same year. Exactly, yeah. They incubate uh, players just as well as a lot of other international teams. Um, so the NBA clearly has ties to Israel, but it maybe doesn't need to address them since, A, they quietly stopped playing exhibition games with Israeli teams and in Israel in general. And B, Israeli players suck because they are white, like the actual Israeli players, not just the ones who played in the league, because they are, as we know, white Jews. And they don't have to worry about an influx of Israeli talent in their league, um, for that matter, because they are small and uh, skinny and measly. Um, but as we'll discuss later, sorry, by the way, I'm Jewish, as we said many a times, there'll be a lot of self self-hatred in this episode. Um, but as we'll discuss later, the Israeli uh, league also has strict rules about their rosters. I don't know if you knew this, Abdul, but like they need to have half their roster be Israeli or Jewish, and they need at least two players in the starting lineup to be Israeli or at least Jewish. This is um, fairly so, unique, by the way, for international ball. Yes. They have like CRTC type rules. Like they basically are like, we need as much Drake to be played as American rappers on our fucking NBA roster. It's very unique to the NBA so or to a basketball league. So for that reason, Israeli players have lots of opportunities in their home country. So on that note, this is the most controversial thing I could find that the NBA has done that's related to Israel in the past 10 years. Um, it starts off kind of good and then ends bad, as you might assume. So this is from the Washington Post. NBA apologizes for calling Palestine territories Palestine-occupied. So the National Basketball Holy Association. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, so th this actually happened, but then was swept under the rug very quickly, as we'll see with a lot of these kinds of stories. The National Basketball Association's website is a mishmash of things. This is, again, from the Washington Post. Old school power rankings, LeBron James retrospectives, boss score, and a helping of international political incidents. I found that quote interesting because it seems to be exclusive to this end incident and I guess China. Like in terms of the NBA since the start of the internet was a thing. Um, can you name any other international like issues other than these? No, the NBA has kept a really squeaky clean record with like global mm -hmm. basketball, probably like out of the David Stern tradition, right? Like you know we're not too black for the rest of the world like we have a healthy amount of like european players because like you know, dirk Nowitzki yeah. and stuff like that like yeah no that's abs by the way the nba whoever whoever put that up is an absolute <laughs> god like <laughs> i know right? 
The controversy comes courtesy of a list of nations tucked deep in the NBA website. On the site, fans can nominate their favorite players for an all-star team. Afterwards, voters are invited to fill out a form with their name, email, and home country. Included in that drop-down menu was Palestine-occupied territory. The NBA's terminology echoed the United Nations and the International Court of Justice, which refers to the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem as occupied. But... Top Israeli officials decried the language as provocative and inaccurate. In a letter to the Professional Basketball League, Culture and Sports Minister Miri Regev wrote the term legitimized, quote, the division of the state of Israel and as a gross and blatant interference, in contrast to the official position of the American administration as the declarations of President Tr Donald Trump, who has just recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. So you grew up in like a, a very Jewish community, right? You grew up in Israel, but like... I, yeah, which, which I will bring up a bit more, but yeah, I grew up in Ashkelon, Israel, 20 minutes north of the Gaza Strip. Okay, so when you moved to Toronto, did you you moved to like uh you know a jewish neighborhood in toronto uh yeah we moved to thornhill which is probably the most jewish suburb in all of toronto um, how many uh basketball fans did you know growing up in that community especially uh ones who are of the age where they give a shit about basketball without this contra like quote-unquote controversy um quite a few i would guess not that they would care about this controversy but like i knew quite a few basketball fans like and they, older and this uh, not older, all young, my age. And then the older was, interestingly, like, extremely Canadian, whitewashed, like, hockey-loving Jews. Okay, because I'm just like, in what world would, would a Jewish person over the age of 50 ever claim to give a shit about basketball, except in that situation, R right? Right. No, 100%. Which my dad lent me the book that I'm going to be referring to about Jews who moved to Israel because he mostly cares about the political side of these things. <laughs> I'm sure like very good politics there. Uh not really. But he's a nice guy. <laughs> yeah. Um it's my my dad's fair little anti Semitic, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So we they, we can have them meet after and start their own podcast. <laughs> um Let's go through the context of black players in Israel because um there's all this like propaganda about it, but then there's all this weird bad like news and offensive stories that are swept under the rug as happens in israel a small insular um ideal like ideological country um so this is from how black u.s basketball players became israel's biggest fans by rob gloster it's an article uh that discusses the book ali oop to aliyah great name for a book uh which luckily my dad actually owns so i'm going to be going back and forth between the article and some stuff i took out of the book that i found um so the group david goldstein writes about in aliyup to aliyah comprises the 800 plus black american basketball players who have gone to israel some reluctantly over the past four decades and turn into international promoters for the jewish state some con have converted to Judaism, some married Israeli women, some became citizens, some served in the Israeli Defense Forces, and most stayed to play in Israel's basketball leagues for far longer than they anticipated. Um, again, reluctantly, because like this isn't the like it's funny that they say reluctantly. It's all about like they don't know how safe Israel is, but again, it's really reluctantly because like you have to play in like a sh like fifth tier international league and get paid way less than you would get paid in Europe. Um, Goldstein's book uh, is a decade-long project done while he was practicing law in his hometown of Toronto. What the of fuck course. is with all this Toronto connection, by the way? Of course. It, it, 
It focuses on the surprise uh, many players experienced and how comfortable and safe they felt in Israel, where they could speak English, eat American fast food, and party at Tel Aviv hip-hop clubs. Like, the book, by the way, is just riddled with all the subtle Israeli propaganda, just shit like, yes, we're the only democracy in the Middle East, so you can eat a cheeseburger in Tel Aviv. Like, we grew plants in the in the sand. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, drink from your fucking soda stop. stream. <laughs> you yeah, know? Exactly. While, doing, while going to the Pride Parade or whatever. <laughs> The first black American player to have a significant impact in Israeli basketball was Aluk Peri, who signed a two-month contract in 1976 and ended up converting and becoming an Israeli citizen. Perry led the 1976-77 Maccabi Tel Aviv to a EuroLeague championship, a first for the Israeli team, including a dramatic win over the Soviet Red Army team that boosted Israeli national confidence and is still considered by many Israelis to be their country's greatest sports moment. He went on to date Israeli supermodel Tammy Ben-Ami and became a national hero. And by the way, he was given the moniker of Moses. So this dude came in to two months to Israel and cucked the entire country by the way holy fuck which is pretty sick actually and started this weird trend of like black guys going there and converting to judaism and kind of becoming these superstars um there's another specific quote like from from the book that i found interesting about the subject which is african americans who come to israel to play professional basketball are actually surprised by the absence of war there which like is funny to me because i grew up in ashkelon which is the closest major city to gaza strip I, too, never saw signs of war. I had a really great, peaceful childhood. <laughs> Perhaps apartheid helps with that. You were, in the, you were in the bubble. You were in the Iron Dome. <laughs> yeah, I was in the Iron Dome, the bubble of Israel. Um, like, you know, throwing everyone into one, like, that you don't like into one area usually helps, like, mask the signs of war with those people. Um, so I, I just love all the subtle shit from this Zionist propaganda book. Um, it, it has all these stories about, then, about, like... Uh, testimonials from players who've been to Israel. So um, uh, it recounts, a, like the book recounts a story from Orlandic Mando, Orlando Magic forward Donald Royal, who, great name, who almost was caught in a terrorist bombing in 1991. Uh, he was being asked by his family to return home after the incident, but was praised by the Israeli government for his courage in staying after after that moment. Um, uh, the chapter also goes on to tell these stories from black players in Israel who were impressed by the war effort and were maybe confused <laughs> by the mandatory conscription, but then understood it as a necessary thing because they continued to live in Israel and eventually got used to this idea that there's like violence around them, but they can feel good because they're quote unquote safe. Yeah. Institutionalization, right? It's like making people your own and then taking them back to the world and being like, look at, look at all these people we fucking, you know, captured, right. Or like who love us. It's, and it is like, again, like, it is like also, I know it's like predatory without saying, but you're also taking people who like either came out of one year of college or high school who have mm. been playing ball their entire lives and who in a lot of situations haven't been exposed to like global politics outside of like the political experience of being black in America, right? Mm -hmm. And then bringing them to the other side of the world and being like, just force feeding them propaganda, right? People who, who don't really know about the subject uh because they've never you know been taught about it but who also have massive public platforms in some cases like amari stoudemire right like it's it's super fucking sinister when you really think about it yeah and we'll we'll see this in literally a second because i don't want to forget this next note i have here but their rudimentary sort of 
response to how they might even be racially profiled in Israel, which has happened to some of the players. Um, but just about Israeli players quickly, because I don't want to forget this. I have this in the note, my messy notes, that um, there was actually a Israeli port guard named Tommy Mayan who had to spend 48 hours in prison for failing to return to Israel in time for an army-imposed enlistment date, and he was studying at Seton Hall University in New Jersey. So that's like conscription might be also a huge roadblock for Israeli players to come to America, Miri Regev. But um, anyways, um, I, I chose this article because it goes on to address like something rarely noted in Israel, which is racism against black people, as you just like pointed out is kind of an interesting thing that they're glossing over. But there's um, no so racism is, in Israel. No, no. Uh, I mean, like the, everybody. Or homophobia uh, for that matter. No, they have they have a they have a pride parade in Tel Aviv, which is not is it's not the only democratic like sort of liberal city in Israel. No, there's other ones. Um, lots of sarcasm in uh, both of our sentences. It's like um, going to Turkey, which I I've done this for like the difference between Istanbul and every other city in Turkey is. It's like being in a different country, basically, right? Because, right. like, Istanbul really is that east-west crossroads. Like, you know, mm -hmm. there's obviously some taboo, but, like, you know, you go from there to, like, any city in, like, Anatolia, for example, and it, it really is, like, the difference between being in, like, I don't know, New York, and then going immediately to Iraq, right? <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's really fucking weird, and... Which which is actually maybe yeah. why uh, basketball players come to, like, black basketball players come to Israel and get this, like, weird culture shock where they end up, like, becoming mouthpieces for the Israeli government because they thought they were going to Iraq, but they went to this weird remixed Iraq that has a McDonald's at the Golan Heights or whatever. Um, <laughs> is there actually but, a McDonald's in Golan Heights? I, I can only assume so. Um, <laughs> there are restaurants like up there and like some chain restaurants from the last time I was there. Imagine so. getting <laughs> imagine getting hit by a by a Hamas RPG while eating at <laughs> Olive Garden. <Yeah. laughs> I'm having my kosher non cheeseburger Big Mac and I fucking just get katushad by 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 some people on the uh, like five minutes away um so just going back to black players experiences there this is from an article from j post the jerusalem post why so many african-american pro basketball players love israel by gabe friedman so when it comes to racism goldstein uh the writer of aliyub talia said that he learned from his interviews that many players have actually felt less overt racism in israel than they did in the u.s for example, Willie Sims, who played in Israel for nearly 20 years, was once nearly arrested when he locked his keys in his car and tried to get back into it. Israeli police officers knocked him to the ground and handcuffed him. I asked, did any of that make you want to come back to the U.S.? And he said, are you kidding? All they did was handcuff me. In the U.S., I would have gotten shot. Um, Jesus so he got Christ. he got racially profiled, and that's okay, but he didn't die from the racial profiling, right? So Israel is... Is, is better in that sense. But the funny thing is, is like, I understand his logic. <laughs> you know I mean, like, that's the worst part of this is like, I, I, given the choice between those two extremes, I would definitely pick the handcuffing over the shooting, right? Like, there's, and there is going to be like, um, 
uh, weird hints of logic in a lot of these testimonies. It's just they're always relegated to be used for like Zionist propaganda. There's just there's there's no stone left unturned in Israel for stuff they can use. Even the racial profiling is still somehow twisted into Zionist propaganda, right? Exactly. Continuing the article, yet while the players seem to be accepted on societal levels, prejudices remain. No African American has ever been a head coach in Israel's first division, and very few have had prominent coaching jobs in the second and third divisions. In a speech to Israeli military members in 2001, then Maccabi Tel Aviv coach Pinny Gershon was fired for saying that lighter-skinned players were smarter than darker-skinned ones who he called dummies and slaves. This is the full quote, by the way, from Pinny Gershon before I have you comment (laughs) about this. Quote, even among blacks, there are different colors. Uh, By the way, huge fucking trigger warning here. There is dark black and there is mocha. The mocha types are more clever. Usually, the darker color comes from the street. Jesus. You could see the standing of those with a bit more mixture in their color. The darker blacks are stupid. They will do whatever you tell them, like slaves. Um, um, by the way, regardless of all this bad press, Gershon was rehired two years later by Maccabi Tel Aviv, went on to win more championships with them, and eventually like held roles in Israeli basketball, and went to, and he's currently a broadcaster. By the way, that is absolutely like just the brazenness of that quote. You know what I mean? It's not even like it's not even like he was saying it in private, right? Like that's the most insane part. Yeah, like like there was the announcer earlier this year who was fired for saying you know gay slurs uh, when he thought the baseball. Yeah, when he thought the the mic was off, right? It's remarkable. Um, It's. This guy's like the Rick Pitino of like basketball too, because like the black players were quoted in this book and in other articles that I found defending him and saying that like he's not a racist and he's such a great coach and he didn't mean it. But to your point, like he said this publicly, which means he he airs out this theory in practices, I assume. Like, oh, you're one of those mocha types, you come here, you can play the wing position, you fucking darker ones, you get to be in the back. Yeah, or you get to you get to come off the bench and play center or something like that, right? Like yeah. It is, it, like, again, like, it's one of those things where it's, like, even the most, like, virulently racist coach in America wouldn't even start to imagine to say something like that in public, right? Like, even in, like, hegemonically white countries, I don't think, like, a coach in, like, Belgium, for example, would even think about, like, it would think it was okay to say this. But there's something about, like, that environment, especially since it's, like, so insulated, right? Like, Israel as a country is, like, mm-hmm. more deeply insular than, you know, most other uh, most other countries in the world. Um, one of the players actually who defended this Gershon guy, like, went and shat on Europe, like, saying that Europe is more racist. Even though, like you said, like, it can be assumed that most of those coaches would probably be aware of, like, international issues of racism um the quote from uh, mark brisker um longtime israeli league player mark brisker recalled being called a monkey and various other racist names while playing in europe but never in israel and like there's so many testimonials like this about shit about how like diverse israel is which makes them easier to integrate like yeah it's diverse in israel no, some of the jews being, are tanned and some of them are not you're not being called a monkey you're just being given an essay on why you're scientifically dumb <laughs> like you're given a caliper <laughs> test rather than having slurs yelled at you right 
I mean, I, the Jews are very intellectual, right? Like they they <laughs> they know how smart they are. Um, by the way, this Pini Gershon controversy was not the first one in Israel. Like even after all this anti-racism talk about how Israel is the bastion of equality, um, one final controversy and another trigger warning for everybody who's listening. Um, this is from uh, a uh, blog by Seth J. Fransman. Um, it's called Terra Incognita. Israel's K-word can Holon teach us a lesson in racism? So. Um, this is from the blog post. At a conference at the Rupin Academic Center, the mayor of Holon, Moti Sasson, sat beside public officials and sports personalities and delivered a racist attack on Israeli sports and black people. According to media reports, quote, I don't want to see foreigners in Israeli sports. If you want to see Kushim, watch the NBA. Subsequently, he made a strange apology explaining that the use of the term Kushi, which is, by the way, spelled K-U-S-H-I, had no place. It was meant, obviously, to refer to foreigner players. Um, to listeners who aren't aware, like many equate the word Kushi to that of the N-word in the English language. Generally, it was used in the Hebrew Bible to refer to dark-skinned people. The Wikipedia page supports Moti Sasson's apology a bit, like... It explains that the, in the terminology of the word, in early modern Hebrew usage, the term kushi was used as an R-mark referent to dark-skinned or red-haired person, funny enough, without derogatory implications. By the way, I do not remember using that word against gingers in Israel. Uh, but for example, <laughs> it is used as a nickname, a term of endearment, or the renowned Israeli commando of the Yemenite extransion, Shimon Kushi Rimon. When William Shakespeare's Othello was first translated to Hebrew in 1874, the hero of the play was named Ithiel the Cushite. But in 2012, Kiryat Arbaz, Chief Rabbi Dovlior, referred to U.S. President Barack Obama as the Cushi of the West. Um, but as the Wikipedia article, Wikipedia article aptly points out, like in contemporary usage, the term is regarded as an ethnic slur, slur akin to American usage of the N word. So, like. Context is everything here. Like, similarly to how Zionist rhetoric is constantly used to obfuscate, like, Israel's shitty talking points, they basically do the exact same thing to hide, like, this inherent xenophobia and racism towards black people when they have their own N-word that they constantly try to say isn't the N-word somehow. These days, we are completely bombarded with video content, whether it's a series, movies, or documentaries about, I don't know, Carol Baskin and the Tiger King. That's the best documentary there is, right guys? Screenworthy tries to cut through all this noise and talk about what it all means from a cultural standpoint and how it affects the future of filmmaking. Hosts Kyle Bodanis and the smart alecky Mine Refinery creative team talk to content creators and filmmakers about the state of the industry while diving deep into noteworthy projects that arrive on your screen. Screenworthy drops every other Tuesday on the Mine Refinery podcast channel, wherever you get your podcasts. So, um, I was looking at Instagram today and I saw that there is a, uh, on October 15th, um, Today, actually, we are currently missing it uh, at the time of recording. There is a screening online of a, of a program called Shared Legacies, the African-American Jewish Civil Rights Alliance, headlined okay. by one <laughs> okay. no, uh, none other than um, Amari Stoudemire. <laughs> or one of very few. One of very few. Uh, also on that list is Z- Black... Uh, is uh, another black person, Zakaria Yeshe Levine, who from Tick Gaming, and Quincy Avery, uh, you mm. know, uh, NFL quarter. I think he's an NFL quarterback. Um, I did not know that. Uh, and the next thing on this uh, Instagram page was a 
an advertisement for Studemeyer Wines from the account Amari Israel, by the way. That's his actual uh, social handle is Amari, I-S-R-E-A-L. Get it? Israel. Israel. Um, but his wine is called uh, is Studemeyer Private Collection Jerusalem. Yeah. And yeah, I'm yeah, 100% yeah. He, sure it's produced on legally on legally occupied land. Oh, for sure. I mean, he had been working on his wine line while he was at, at the like playing for the Knicks in New York and his move to Israel it just made sense for him to start making it kosher wine, right? And I'm sure they offered him any piece of uh, land that he uh, wanted to to go and start the this third venture. The biggest thing on that wine label, by the way, it's Studemeyer Private Collection is the first one. Then subheading jerusalem and the third biggest thing on it is product of israel (laughs) no one's gonna boycott that um it's (laughs) it's funny like he was lauded by a lot of people funny enough in the wikipedia article he's referred to as you actually pointed out to me earlier today as american israeli professional basketball player amari karsaris studemeyer um he's like really accomplished we were actually discussing before starting recording on if he's a hall of famer and he really might be minus the nba championship he won nba rookie of the year award in 2003 with the phoenix sun who drafted him ninth overall in the 2002 draft he's been an all-star six times one of them with the knicks um he was named to the all nba team five times including one first team selection so in for those who don't know a uh, gang named to the nba first team that's five players who get it and it is so fucking rare to be named to a first team. Like you have legendary players who are Hall of Famers who have won multiple championships who have never been named to the NBA first team. Like it is like if you if you get that, you might as well be in like second MVP, right? Or third or fourth or fifth. Like it is so yeah. hard. Yeah. His his career was like fourteen years. Um, so that means like about a third of his career was spent being on all NBA teams and half of it was being on all-star teams. So um, he did not, he did not uh, mince uh, his talents on the court Um, until he went to the Knicks, baby until he went to the Knicks where everybody does that. Um, In 2010, Studemeyer opted out of his contract with the Phoenix Suns, which made him an unrestricted free agent. During free agency, he got his big payday with the New York Knicks, who agreed to a $99.7 million contract that they're totally not going to stretch uh, after all this. They totally will. On the first day that free agents were allowed to officially sign, the Knicks formally introduced Stoudemire at Madison Square Garden, where he proclaimed, quote, the Knicks are back, referring to their lack of success <laughs> in the past few years. So for those who don't know, because I'm, I'm hopeful that a lot of non-basketball fans or non-sports fans are listening to this, the Knicks are uh, the punchline <laughs> of basically all American sports. Like the Knicks, and, and for a while it was the Cleveland Browns, but they got better and the Knicks did not. And they're owned by a massive piece of shit. We'll do an episode on the future. James 100%. Dolan. Yes. Uh, I mean, let's go into like what happened on the Knicks with uh, Studemeyer. Um, he was reunited, by the way, with Mike D'Antoni, who had coached him on the Suns. Um, on December 15th, two the, 2010, in a loss against the Boston Celtics, Stude- in a loss, by the way, a loss, Studemeyer sent a franchise record with his ninth straight 30-point game. Um, also, in December of 2010, he set a franchise record with his ninth straight shooting 50% or better from the field. 
And on January 27, 2011, uh, Studemeyer was named a starter for the Eastern Conference All-Star team alongside LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Derrick Rose, and Dwight Howard. He became the first Knicks player, by the way, to start in the game since Patrick Ewing. So that just speaks to how awful the front office has been, which, by the way, to to, uh, our non-NBA or basketball fans, like the Knicks last time in the playoffs at that point was 1997 or 98 with Jeff Van Gundy coaching them and Patrick Ewing going up against the Rockets in uh, in uh, one of the lockout seasons. That era of Studemeyer's career can't be met, uh, really discussed without uh, mentioning Carmelo Anthony because on February 22nd, 2011, the Knicks made a three-team trade with the Denver Nuggets and Minnesota Timberwolves that sent Nuggets superstar Carmelo Anthony to the Knicks alongside Nuggets starting point guard Chauncey Billups, which a lot of people don't remember um, because he was like waved very quickly off that team Um, and then that year the Knicks made their first playoff appearance since 2004 Um, Studemeyer was injured during the playoffs by the way (laughs) in game three Studemeyer attempted a Willis Reed like comeback by playing in a game despite having a bad back in the first round of the playoffs the Knicks were swept by the Boston Celtics Studemeyer actually ended up having one of the best seasons in his career averaging 25.3 points 9.1 9.1 rebounds and a career high 2.6 assists and two blocks per game. Like, which to be honest is probably enough reason for Amari to become a Knicks legend besides the fact that he began to dabble in Judaism. Like, those are fairly good lines for a for a franchise that just needed anything at that point to feel good about itself. His his nickname was Stat um because of how he <laughs> pumped up stat lines. And that never stopped, by the way. Um like also just for our listeners who maybe aren't aware of Jewish basketball history um, in the Knicks, like let's just go into that a bit quickly. Cause during um, the NBL's inaugural season, um, the Knicks were the most Jewish team ever. Um, this is actually uh, from Charlie Rosen's book, the chosen game, which you provided me with Abdul very useful uh, for this episode um, quote, since New York city still contained the largest population of Jews in the country. And since basketball was a secular religion to so many Jews there, it was no surprise when the Knicks opening day, 10 man rostered featured so many Jews. Indeed, according to Ned Irish quote, good players were those who could bring more fans through the turnstiles. He had no other criteria. So Jews and like particularly Israelis might not be starting for the Knicks anymore. Like as we discussed, but there's this like strong Jewish, context and cultural affinity for the Knicks that's based like on more than just history and now we all also know this because Uncut Gems is on Netflix. Just to finish off his career so yeah after that lockout season um, it was not quite a disaster but like more of a classic Knicks season like first of all Amari's uh, in the uh, 2012-2013 season Amari's brother dies at the beginning of the season so he has to miss a whole bunch of games for that, which we're not going to make fun of. Um, the 2012 Eastern Conference All-Stars are announced, and Studemeyer isn't voted in for the first time in a while. Um, he wasn't even selected by the coaches to play in the game. And following issues with weight gain from the lockout, he lost a crazy amount of weight uh, to try and pick up his play again because his stats were dropping, which actually happened. He had a really good march that people would talk about a lot, but then he suffered a bulging disc in his back. Um, he returned with a few games in the regular season. Um, they actually, they were the seventh seed that year, the Knicks and had to go against, um, the Miami LeBron James, uh, team in the first round. Um, and this is where, uh, the beginning of the end starts for, uh, Amari super team of the 21st of the 21st century. For those who don't know. (laughs) 
Yeah, for those who don't remember, that was when LeBron James recruit uh, was recruited in a way by Pat Riley and Dwayne Wade to join the Heat, and they also stole our dearest Chris Bosh from the Raptors. Um, so yeah, after a loss in Game 2 to the Miami Heat, Stoudemire actually suffered from a self-inflicted cut to his left hand from punching a fire extinguisher box in the visitor's locker room. <laughs> Uh, the, the, it required stitches to mend. He re- returned for game four and recorded 20 points in a Knicks victory, um, which snapped like a record 13 game playoff loss streak for the Knicks at that point. Um, the Knicks, however, would not win another game as they lost the series four to one to the heat and the heat series clinching win in game five. Studemeyer actually fouled out after the heats. Shane Battier drew an offensive foul. This led to Heat's PA announcer announcing that Stoudemire had been, quote, extinguished, referring to Stoudemire's hand injury. <laughs> um, and they actually, they actually ended up apologizing for that no, comment, you, by the you way. No, you double down on that. That's so fucking funny. Yeah, like the, he... The heat is sick. I, I, don't remember play, I don't remember watching him play too, too much, but I did look up a highlight reel um, of Stoudemire before we went to watch this. He seemed like the kind of player who would be a heel for every other fan base in the league. Mm-hmm. Like, he was kind of a prick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. like, as a player, like, people really did not seem to like Amari Stoudemire. Even just, I highly recommend going, um, and we can throw it in the show notes, like, watching mm-hmm. a video of Amari Stoudemire highlights. Uh, because it'll teach you a lot about like what kind of person he is as well. He, he was a bully. He was kind of a pre um, uh, Draymond Green when you think about it, just with more of a center's body. Um, like he's almost like a center version of Patrick Beverly um, at that point. Um, That's a really good uh, way to like describe him, and with the same kind mm-hmm. of irritation that Patrick Beverly brings to anyone who's yeah. not a Clippers fan. All two of them, yeah. Just to finish off his career, though, um, unfortunately, his NBA career was just injury-plagued seasons, um, playing for the New York Knicks, all three seasons following the one where they fell to the heat. Um, So in 2015, um, Stoudemire was actually waived by the Knicks after an agreement was reached to buy out his massive contracts. Um, Really sad way for the Knicks legend to go out, but to be honest, kind of by the book, in my opinion. Uh, We should probably do an episode on how terrible this fucking franchise is. Um, And also, like, waivers, too, by the way. Uh, yeah sorry to cut you off um no 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 no. this is one of the reasons the knicks struggled so hard after he left other than all the other reasons the knicks suck is because they still had like if you if you buy out a player you still have to pay his fucking salary like he still takes up space on your salary cap and yeah yeah. amari's name would have been on their salary cap for years after that so knicks players who are really into the math would have to stare at his fucking salary being paid (laughs) out like after that fact I'm still seeing like people like I don't know I think Grievous Vasquez or some other players on the Raptors. I, they have, he just came off the books. I'm pretty sure he left like the Raptors year. three years ago, but he's still on the books. They have about eight million dollars in dead cap, which is not bad for that kind of team. But we we could have become the Knicks, but unfortunately, fortunately, we had Masai um, save us. Um, but yeah, Amari's uh, career ends really quickly after this. Like he does two short contracts with the Heat and the Mavericks, and then he decides to end his NBA career and move to Israel. Um, but like his interest in Israel uh, did start while he was still in the NBA. It wasn't something that he just came up with after he was done in the NBA. Specifically, this was ha- he was really exploring it while he was on the Knicks. Um, this is actually some context from Charlie Rosen's The Chosen Game. In 2010, Studemeyer made his first visit to Israel. 
prompting him to initiate the process of attaining Israeli citizenship. That's also when he became part owner of Hapoel Jerusalem, an Israeli basketball team. His next trip to the Holy Land came in the summer of 2013 when he served as an assistant coach to a basketball team that represented Canada at the Maccabee Games. It was then that Studemeyer also met and became, quote, best friends with Shimon Perez, who was Israel's president. So Amari is basically becoming like the Dennis Rodman of Israel, except maybe like kind of cooler because he isn't becoming friends with Benjamin Netanyahu and with Shimon Perez instead. Like and best friends in quotations is is pretty pretty funny to me. That's um, ridiculous. Um we're gonna go into like his background as a Jew a bit more. Um but um oh by the way like he's not the only former African American Knickerbocker to convert to Judaism. Uh, as I mentioned to you in our chat, J.R. Smith's younger brother, Chris Smith, actually did so and was influenced by Amari while he's on the uh, Knicks. Um, he was always interested, like Chris, uh, uh, the, the Smiths are from New Jersey, and Chris is quoted in an interview to say that he was always interested in the influx of Hasidic Jews in New Jersey. He's quoted actually specifically saying that he wondered why these dudes would walk around in all black during the hottest months of summer. Um, Chris was signed to the Knicks basically after his older brother demanded that he be signed there as well. Um, that's where he met Amare and was curious about why he was wearing tzitzit, which is the traditional Orthodox garb that you wear under your clothes and the religious brooks he was bring. Uh, Chris was then signed to Daniel Hazan, who is an openly Orthodox NBA agent, NYU graduate, um, who kept inviting Chris to Shabbat dinners to get him signed. Um, and he still does to this day for, uh, after his NBA career. Um, and basically, uh, he decided to become Jewish after a trip to Israel with Hazan, where a rabbi approached Chris at the Wailing Wall and told him that he was a, had a Jewish soul. So Chris's Zionist conversion was like a bit quicker than Amari's. And interestingly enough, I think this Daniel Hazan is basically the Ari Gold of like Orthodox basketball, Orthodox basketball representation. Um but yeah, I just put that as an aside. Let's go back to Amari's <gasps> conversion. Oh, to and he's also Judaism playing in Israel too. Exactly. Um, so there's this weird history of this with the Knicks now. I hope they become a weird uh, pipeline for Israeli basketball. Can you imagine um, if if Dolan just packs up the team and moves them to Israel? I know he really fucking should at this point. <laughs> well, yeah, they already have a, a better team in New York now. Exactly. And like a lot of the, there's so many Israelis and Hasidic Jews who op- like go to Israel every fucking year for Passover or whatever. That's so how Spike they Lee. They just make a part of their trip. That's how Spike Lee <laughs> becomes an Israeli citizen as well. Oh Noted. my God. I saw him do a talk in film school and university and he would pause to talk every five minutes to check the Knicks score. Oh my <laughs> and God. Like, I feel so bad for that man. They're losing. You know, they're losing. Yeah. He's the reason they lost. In the 90s. Um, well, you know what? When we do our Knicks episode, maybe we should focus on the tumultuous relationship the Knicks have with like their biggest fans and former players because <laughs> they seem to love to... Uh, famously, Spike uh, Spike uh, Lee was, was kicked out of a fucking uh, Knicks game last summer for like going through the wrong entrance because Dolan actually runs his team kind of like Israel runs its uh, country when you think about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, you Dolan really wants him to go back to fucking colored's entrance, right? Like that used to be a oh Madison Square garden. Like, yeah, the guy's a massive piece of shit. Also best friends with Harvey Weinstein too, which, uh, which we can talk about later, but yeah, back to Amari. Just on Amari's context, like how he got here, um, Mr. Studemeyer, this is from a, by the way, I said that because I'm quoting a New York times article by Sam, Kessendbaum, 
where he refers to him as Mr. Studemeyer. Mr. Studemeyer was raised in a church-going home, but has long felt more of an affinity for the ancient Hebrews of the Bible for modern-day Christians. And this is also actually from Charlie Rosen's The Chosen Game. Quote from Amari, My parents were both spiritual people, and he was brought up to believe in what he calls, quote, the entire Bible, with Old Testament <laughs> offering as many moral and ethical lessons and advice as the New Testament. Uh, this is another That's a quote red from flag, Amari. by the way. That's a huge uh, red flag. Huge red flag. Um, he goes on, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and a lot of Jewish people don't believe that, but then there are some that do. Although he discovered no distinct evidence that any of his mother's ancestors were actually Jews, Sudemeyer says this, I have been aware since my youth that I have been a Hebrew through my mother's side. His, uh, his mother's somewhat vague recollections were sufficient for Studemeyer to immerse, herself in, immerse himself in Judaic history and culture. Quote, I'm not technically Jewish, but I'm culturally Jewish. And it happened organically. So, like, it doesn't say this, but his family was actually Baptist in Florida, uh, which is really interesting. Like, his mother seems to be, I guess, educated on black Israelites, and they would discuss this. Um, which I will say is interesting that he didn't get it from like going on some Wikipedia hole. Like there is this weird, like organic spiritual uh, connection. Move. Yeah, yeah, for him to become Jewish. It is really interesting that like Amari can get away with this, whereas like actual Jewish people who have like I don't like you know race science, but Zionists do right. But like actual Jewish yeah. people who are outspoken critics of Israel, like you know, people jump through an immense amount of hoops to deny uh, their Judaism, right? Like to find on a scientific level, a denial of their, of their, you know, uh, ethnic Judaism, right? Literally. Um, so it, it, it's funny that, but I, as we discussed earlier, these players are really, these kinds of representatives of Israel are seen as very valuable to the Israeli government and sections of Israeli, like just, the spokespeople that that represent Israeli sports uh, need this kind of thing. Um, so Amari actually got his Israeli citizenship officially in 2019 while playing basketball there. And he announced Wednesday, um, this is back in 2019, in a post on Instagram that his conversion to Judaism was finally complete. Um, I um, have uh, something to add to that. He did. Yeah, please. He did post on Instagram. This was a uh, this was during the march of return where you know people were being shot all over the place like Palestinians were being mm-hmm. shot all over the place. He posted "Pray for Palestine" in like the most milk toast meme of a um Jewish and uh, Muslim kid holding hands. Oh my god! And I then, mean, he 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 has a camp where he does Palestinian and Jews um, to come together and play together, but I assume it's just as milk toast as what you're describing. Yeah, he did. Um, he did delete it. After the fact, after <laughs> Becky Griffin, an Israeli born columnist who describes herself as a basketball princess in her Twitter bio, mm. um, harassed him repeatedly through TMZ Sports, the New York Times, and a bunch of high profile Zionists on him. Um, and like she just for hours, I'm I'm not joking, I'm reading the article right now. For hours, she just retweeted this thing, tagging hundreds of different organizations. What the fuck? Like Daily Beast, Deadspin, New York Times, uh, the organizers of camp in Israel until he deleted it. So he got Barry Weist, basically, by yes. this girl. Uh, and and that was, it, it appears that that was actually threatening this meme, which you can find. It's the most boring shit in the world. It's not even like anti-Israel. There is like an implication that threatened his ability to get citizenship if he had kept it up. 
Well, it's funny that you. I, I missed that entirely. Like, I was digging anywhere for any, like, notion that Amari ever talked fully about Palestine other than talking about his, like, peace camp that he holds in Tel Aviv where he invites Palestinian and um, an Israeli uh, children to come play together. Um, but I guess they let him talk about this stuff where he, he um, defends Jews. There's actually, like, an interview clip with him on TMZ where he cites lack of leadership in the black community as the reason why some black celebrities fall for anti-Semitic conspiracies. Like, I guess Amari, he's a black Israelite, but he's not the Nick Cannon or Wiley type where they think that Jews like stole their valor. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, Kevin Durant is like a nation of Islam guy like that. I understand the NOI is incredibly anti-Semitic. Right. But like, I, a lot of these also just stem from like normal, anti-semitic conspiracy theories like it's not unique to like black people it's unique to one high profile black player and like a million white people who think jews control the world right exactly um i mean zionist jews like love this his rhetoric too where he he constantly says how similar black people are to jews um i feel like that just keep reaffirms keep continues to reaffirm their need to constantly basically just reaffirm israel's position as a uh as a valid um state um actually when the synagogue attack in pittsburgh happened amari made an instagram video explaining that anti-semitism from a black person is actually self-hate as members of the lost tribe of israel and that as jews we must participate participate in the act of love until the messiah comes to israel for the end times just until then though yeah, so he is slowly becoming a bit of a fundamentalist uh, Jew. Like he he does do the Jew the Jew thing pretty strictly. Like he doesn't eat pork anymore. He doesn't eat shellfish. He um, uh, uh, considers himself a Jew. But actually, in a 2016 documentary about signing in Israel, he goes on to say that he still considers himself a Christian at the same time. He believes in the entire Bible, as uh-huh. I had said. Can Jewish people wear gold? Uh yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's just that it's the the tattoos are an issue, and he has a whole bunch of Jewish tattoos. Which, like, I was watching some of these documentaries about him there. Like, (laughs) whenever the rabbis are asked about it, their faces turn red, and they're like, "Oh, I can't speak about that." (laughs) We still love Amare. Like, they just they don't really care. I'm so curious. He has a bunch of Scholastic Children's books called Stats. Yes, (laughs) I want to know. Like, I wish I could do a Control F through them for mentions of Israel. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it would be great if he actually did like a pro-israeli cartoon uh kids kids book of some kind um uh, but I, just on the gold aspect actually and just on amari being like an influencer of some kind um so this is from that new york times article i mentioned earlier um when they were interviewing him they they describe that uh the way he looked that his name was splashed in big white letters on a black leather jacket he wore to the museum that actually said spiritual gangster on the front of it as well. He had two necklaces glittered on his chest. One was a Hebrew menorah and the other was a Jesus medallion. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So this, uh, what, what's Amari doing exactly? Um, this is from the Charlie Rosen book about Jews and basketball. Um, the culture has influenced Studemeyer to the point where he wore a yarmulke and prayer shawl for his 2012 religious wedding. He tweets Shabbat Shalom on the eve of Sabbath and has started days with Twitter messages of Boker Tov, which is Hebrew for good morning. Um, and although the practice is frowned upon in virtually every Judaic practice, Studemeyer has the Star of David tattooed on his shoulder. So, like, he rocks, 
Israelite swag and is basically becoming like a Jewish Zionist influencer with like fashion and social media to like boost this like Judaic identity. And he owns one of the clubs, right? He owns Hapoel Jerusalem, which is where he signed. Israeli Jay-Z, like in terms of like entrepreneurship or whatever, because he's also got the wines. He's also got the... (laughs) It's so funny that you say that because I literally wrote that in my (laughs) fucking notes after this part. Um, This is... uh, from uh, a different from the same New York Times article, Mr. Studemeyer's faith has animated his professional forays. In 2014, he produced a documentary, Village of Peace, um, about a longtime Hebrew Israelite community in Demona, Israel. Um, he also calls his mushrooming private miscellany of arts, including a Jean-Michel Basquiat canvas, among many other 70-ish pieces, the Melech Collection, which is uh, Hebrew for king. Um, a new addition to his collection is a 45-foot mural depicting the fiery siege of Jerusalem's second temple in AD 70. Yeah. And his new wine label, Studemeyer Cellars, released three new bottles just in time for Passover. This year, a Cabernet Sauvon and other blends of red, all kosher, made from grapes crushed at an Israeli vineyard. Um, he also hosts an, is- an internet course on the popular legends of biblical lost tribes of Israel. So he's basically a Zionist Jay-Z art peddler. Um, like he's, a- he's also a classic celebrity with like a wine line or a liquor of some kind, right? But it's like Black Manischewitz, which is pretty cool. He's And then it, on the wine, in a YouTube video promoting the Big Three, which we didn't really mention, he plays for uh, Ice Cube's Big Three, three-on-three league for one summer. It's for a washed-up players, basically. Yeah, so Amari was perfect for that. Um, he talks about his wine line. He had been working on it since he had been on the Knicks, and his move to Israel just expedited the process. Uh, or he found like a bunch of idiots who would eat his disgusting uh, kosher wine on the daily, right? Yeah, like, and... I think it's worth considering, like, what he represents in this case, right? Which is, like, he is this super... And, and like, I don't know how how he's influenced the culture of, like, hip-hop in Israel, right? Or, like, the culture of, like, blackness, quote-unquote, in Israel, right? But, like, you know, you see this in China where, like, uh, kids and teenagers will listen to hip-hop, either American or Chinese... Uh, you know, where obviously luxury clothing brands, they're popularized by black people, but still exhibit yeah. like a deep amount of like, you know, racism um, and sort of race science attitudes towards black people. Right. Um, it's actually very telling that, you know, after LeBron, the other big player in uh, in China is Clay Thompson. Right. Who is quite light skinned. <laughs> but yeah, like, you know, I, I I'm sort of thinking about like has this changed anything around like how Israelis view black people or is it just like, is he just like an ambassador to the world for like this like weird settler state? He's just an ambassador to the, to this settler state. And he's just kind of like on your, the way you've equated it to the Chinese culture of, uh, of appropriating black culture in a sense. There's a Forbes video with him where he's walking around a shuk that he frequents, which is, by the way, like a market or social gathering place in Israel. And he's like talking about all of his investments in Israeli startups and like all this black billionaire type of talk. And he points out all these murals he commissioned in Israel to make it more hip. But like they're all just by Israeli artists. 
he's hanging out in the shuk with only white people. Like it, 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 he, I don't think he could single-handedly change the overt racism towards black people that we described in the first half of this episode, right? Which is what makes this sort of like charming story a bit mute when you really stop to think about it, because nothing has changed since he'd been there. So what? What in your estimation? Like why? Does, you know, the Israeli government, because 100% he's supported by that government, right? And and the yeah. league, like, like what, what makes him so compelling to them? Or, like, what are they, like, genuinely trying to achieve? Because his stated goal is to bridge the gap between black and Jewish communities. Mm-hmm. But, like, what what's actually going on here in terms of, like, what they're trying to do um, sort of around the world, right? Well, I think the 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 post of his about uh, freeing Palestine that he had mentioned is is a perfect example of that. Is that the farthest Amari would take his politics in this in this milk toast, totally digestible way? Like I feel like he's just the perfect sort of sponge for Israeli rhetoric to to come out. And I don't think they would let somebody who had more of a strong political leaning or any more controversies other than, which we can get into, Amari like saying some homophobic shit back in the day while he was on the Knicks, for them to really like avoid allowing a player in. And like we were saying, like black people like in general in Israel are used as like a human shield in a sense to block any overt criticism of the state of, of Israel. So I think there's just this general idea that any, like it's not a Mari specifically, any black players who are willing to come and play in Israel because of lack of opportunities for them in other countries are totally welcomed. It's actually a Mari who sort of took the bull by the horns and made this into this weird business opportunity when he was there that most players don't see like as an opportunity they just see it as a as a road as a pit stop for their careers and like it's important to think about this in the context of international basketball when you're when you're a player because again like the nba has i think 430 active players on its roster it is uh i might even it might even be less than that like i might be fucking up this number completely but it's a Mm -hmm. very tiny amount of players relative to how many players go play basketball in college or across the world right like it is Mm-hmm. I think it's undoubtedly um, the hardest uh, professional sports league to get into just on a numbers basis alone. So, you know, these players, when they go and play because they can't make it in the NBA or they wash out like in the Australian Basketball League or in, you know, Sweden, part of their duties are not to be a representative of fucking Sweden, right? They're not coming here and being like, eat yeah. eat the Lutfisk, right? <laughs> like, they're not... Well, yeah. and also all those countries, to your point, don't have that kind of national campaign to to basically PR their fucking problems over with a Band-Aid like Israel does, Which, right? yeah, and like even... like, And a bunch of these countries would need it, <laughs> right? But like, mm-hmm. they resort to other methods. Like, China is a great example of this, right? Where like, the Chinese Basketball League is for... Chinese people it's not like you know the Jeremy Lin isn't going around the world like talking about how you know (laughs) Uyghur genocide isn't real or whatever right like he's he's playing basically for Chinese people in China right which is also Mm -hmm. weird because he's Taiwanese uh, as a player but like you get what I'm saying like it's like only Israel has these expectations of players um and I think that definitely needs to be like interrogated which is what we're doing right (laughs) Exactly. And I I guess just on the fact that, you know, most people go to play in Israel, it's not because they really wanted to. Um, The Chinese Basketball League probably pays 
I would uh, I would assume double what the Israeli hundred percent without is, a doubt. Just because of general interest, like the the uh, the the fact that it's a communist country and like that league is boosted partially by government money. It's just completely different situations. Um, but um, just to finish off Amari's, uh, just to talk also about the genuinity of Amari's like stint as a Jew, like his career in Israel is kind of ending the same way his career in America is ending. Um, this is from a, uh, a New York Post article about um, uh, Amari Studemeyer's three options after a roller coaster season in Israel. Um, it wasn't exactly an oasis in the desert on the court for Amare. Um, his stats were modest. He struggled with how Israeli referees whistled fouls and traveling violations. In the European Cup, Studemeyer's stats actually rose to 13 points per game as the club made the final four and he captured MVP honors in the All-Star game in Tel Aviv. But Studemeyer said that his minutes reduction was due to league rules. Two Israelis have to be in the starting lineup and the configuration of the club, which had three other talented Americans, uh, made it best he came off the bench. Quote, Coach had his hands full trying to figure out because we had a very talented team. Coach decided to play the better non-Israelis at guard and settle for better Israelis bigs as starters. They still had their advan advantages. So, like, the CRTC-style policies on players, like, affected Amari. And probably just to, like, appease the Jewish government and league reps we quoted earlier who love to use nice ancient verbs to describe black people. Um, but, like, his dedication to Judaism continues after this, regardless of these hardships, like, which I think speaks to, like, a fairly genuine nature of his venture in a way. And I'm, I did look up some, like, um, editorial op-eds and Jewish news sites about Amari Stoudemire. Okay. And I'm going to give you this. Uh, maybe oh, no. is like, a good place to, like, you know, close to close in on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the obstacles he had to overcome in his uh, life are only part of what is amazing about him. When a number of black entertainers and athletes recently made some anti-Semitic comments, outrageous anti-Semitic comics, Studemeyer began a dialogue with Nick Cannon, and Cannon has significantly changed his <laughs> comments about Judaism. Yeah. <laughs> we live in a time when people talk about privilege. Judaism views even someone as poor as uh, Hillel as a person able to rise to great heights. No matter the situation, it is up to the person... <laughs> Uh, you know, the famously anti-communitarian <laughs> Jewish religion, right? Um, unfortunately, many Jews do not take the time. This is where they tell on themselves. Many Jews do not take the time that Studemeyer has devoted to learning about Judaism. They likely hail <laughs> from much better backgrounds than he. They're not Jewish enough. You don't understand. <laughs> I love that. I love that they say they likely hail from much better backgrounds than he, which they're not black is what Another. I say. Yeah, like just a yeah. different background. You know, it's good. Such yeah. a weird undercut. Yeah. But but that actually like weirdly sums up everything we've talked about. Um like it's also interesting to me that after making like $151 million in the NBA, he saw financial opportunities in Israel as opposed to like playing in these other lauded leagues that we described. So like one can only assume that he has a general love, genuine love for Israel and Ju Judaism, like even more than it has clearly financial benefits to him. But he's also becoming the a fucking mouthpiece for the government. So it just makes me wonder, like, where are they in this decision for him to really stay in Israel? Like, like was he approached by Shimon Perez and told and was told how important he would be for their voice? I think so. Well, he was also like given the superstar treatment, I think, in a way that like and you see this with a lot of players because players usually don't stick around in international leagues, but a lot of them do because they're. 
they're given the superstar treatment that they never got in the NBA, right? Like Jeremy Lin mm-hmm. wants to return to the NBA, I think mostly because he knows what it's like to be a winning to be a winner, right? But he's blowing mm-hmm. up the Chinese basketball league right now and stuff like that. Like why would you want to leave when you making you know, it's one of the few leagues that I think is willing to pay into the um into like the tens of millions rather than just like a million in any international mm-hmm. league is considered top like top of the game, right? Well, maybe we should end with just like what the most recent thing that happened to Amari on a personal level, which is like there's kind of a good ending here where Amari's kids are probably not going to end up fighting in the Israeli army because Amari recently fired filed for divorce from his wife of six years while he was playing in Israel. A year after he had a kid with a girlfriend in Florida, which is like sadly not a sassy Israeli woman. Um, the unique part of this is that he was the one who filed for divorce, not his wife. And he did this while paying the girlfriend child support under the table. Um, like the dream is still kind of alive because Amari actually decided last year to uh, end the divorce proceedings due to financial reasons. Um, so like, but th- that being said, the f- his family decided to move away from Israel while he's playing there. So like the happiest part of this story is that his family might not be forced to a keep living there and like be his kids having to deal with microaggressions on the daily as they like prepare to no scope Palestinians for the Israeli army for no rage. Uh, but one can also assume that Amari would have taken care of that because like the like there's actually like a lot of controversy in Israel about Hasidic Jews and celebrities getting to skip the army so it's it's something we've avoided would have would Amari have enacted those kind of those kind of national powers to to um, protect his children we won't know but i i feel good knowing that his wife and kids are just not in that country anymore personally and with that dear listeners we leave you with the saga of Jehoshaphat ben Abraham <laughs> Yes, uh, which I believe is Amari's. I I'm terrible at Hebrew, and I grew up. Yeah, in, Hoshafet ben Avram. Ben Avram, yeah, yes. Um, uh, yeah, I grew up learning Arabic. Um, and I'm terrible at that too, so it's not anti-Semitic. I'm just not a language person, but um, <laughs> but yeah, nothing. Nothing was anti-Semitic about our episode to anybody who's listening. Criticizing Israel is not anti-Semitic. We don't know. I don't even know why I have to say this because. As we just showed you, sports in Israel would never be used to bring light to to anything that has to do with xenophobia or even apartheid. It's the last thing that anybody in power would allow in Israel, and that's really the only answer we got out of this research. The kids just love to ball, baby. Yeah, yeah. yeah, ball, ball, ballies life. (laughs) I I tried to do that in an Israeli accent as best as I could. But yeah, with that, uh, we'll be back at you next week with another episode. These are all, this is our second episode we're recording, but they're probably going to be released out of order so you don't get basketballed uh, too hard. But uh, yeah, no, look forward to it. And yeah, hope you all have a great week. Thanks, guys. Sorry for the super Jewy episode too, (laughs) but we're we're gonna we're gonna switch it. We're gonna switch everything up in the upcoming episodes. Exactly. Bye. Bye.